Welcome to Pharma Launch Secrets, a podcast by Evermed. We host direct, actionable conversations with world-leading pharma launch experts that will help you launch your next product or indication successfully. Now, here's your host, Bozidar Jovicevic. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Pharma Launch Secrets podcast. And I'm joined today by Trevor Landry, Senior Vice President, Commercial Lead at Seniors Health. Trevor started his career as a sports journalist before moving into the pharmaceutical industry as a result of impressing his boss with his appearance on the news. And he can tell you more about that later, if he wants to. He started his career working with hospitals in various markets in the US, also worked in market access, sales, regional business area leadership, and as a vice president of sales and area commercial lead for Nova Nordisk before recently joining Seniors Health in the senior vice president commercial lead role. Trevor, welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. All right. So uh, let's dive in. And I like to ask all my guests, first of all, given that everything that has been changing in the world in the past couple of years, what has been, in your opinion, the single biggest change about launching new products five years ago and today? I would say that it's the, um, the need to look at something bigger and broader than what maybe we traditionally we used to look at, which was maybe just reach and frequency. Let's splatter the, the marketplace with representatives and a message, and that's going to win the day. I think COVID, for sure, over the last couple of years has accelerated what pharma companies and, and companies need to think about when launching into a marketplace. And I think that's part of the fact that it's not dominated by big pharma any longer. I think that the small or mid-sized companies can have a foot in the door and have a say in a, in a successful launch, but also what we're launching into from uh, an environment, what the, the marketplace is willing to accept, what patient perceptions are, and what patient, as we think of patient as the consumer, what their expectations are. Uh, everything from, you know, we go to Uber Eats, we get stuff delivered to our door each and every day. A lot of stuff is online, maybe more than it used to be. I think that's matriculated its way into the healthcare system and it certainly has impacted the way a company needs to look at a launch. Thank you. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of these people use the word consumerization. I mean, all of us have been locked for, for a couple of years and, you know, we start to appreciate, doctors included, <laughs> great user experiences, access anytime, anywhere and things like that. Um, you have this unique uh, uh, background that you worked on, on both, you know, leading commercial efforts, launch efforts in big pharma and an agency. And, and specifically with Nora Nordist um, in uh, diabetes and now uh, in obesity indications. So if you look back and think of, like, if you had to launch Ozempic and Rebelsis again, what would you differently having in mind with what you just said, or trying to bring this, this, this trends basically to a specific example? So what would you do differently today? And I think it's tough to, to argue if I look back and when you look at the success that Ozempic and Rebelsif has had, I mean, Ozempic is an incredible brand with a great trajectory and has begun to, you know, where they are, the, the market position is, is probably a, a little not by place to say any longer, but that launch was fantastic. It's a great product from a molecule standpoint, efficacy standpoint. It has all of the markers that you would need to be successful in a marketplace. And so I think that's the case. But just if you compare and contrast it briefly with Rebelsis, 
that was launched at uh, the beginning of 2020. Let's think about what happened at the beginning of 2020. That, of course, you know, never forget March 13th, I think, was for many companies and industries the day that people literally pulled themselves out of the field and the, the world shut down for a little bit in many cases. That was the first 60 days of launch for Revelsis. No company, I think, could prepare itself for what we thought maybe be a six-week hiatus or a four-week hiatus turned into, what, a year? And I think that accelerated the need for digital assets. It's accelerated the need for omni-channel promotions. It accelerated the need, and you're almost doing it standing still. So you went from zero to the need to go to 100 overnight. And I think when you compare and contrast those two, same company, same molecule, you know, different, obviously, formulations and delivery, you can see the compare and the contrast of the success that Ozempic still has today and Rebelsis, as successful it has been, probably hasn't met the expectations that the launch that, that that organization had. I think, it though, it does go to show a little bit of um, the need to have these various omni-channel promotional efforts, the, the need to be able to be very clear and specific on the message that you as a company would like to do. I think that's one of the keys that we can talk about later uh, when you talk about launch secrets is, do you know your clients? Do you know who you're targeting? Do you have a very clear message and one of efficacy? Have you defined efficacy for the patients and the providers? Because if something were to happen where you're not able to deliver the type of reach and frequency and engagement with your customers like Rebelsis had, you might struggle to define that yourself and the market may define it for you. Yeah, this is a unique product, which I think was recently featured in one of the Acubia reports, I remember correctly as uh, it was looking at the success and failure rate of launches. And, you know, it basically shows that the failure rate has increased during the, the COVID time. So maybe it was around 50% in the past and then uh, increased. And I think it was, it was also talking about rebelses in a few examples. So um, what happened at the time, if you can share a little bit more, because there was kind of like a shock phase and then there was a scramble phase. So how do we use more webinars and how do we do use Viva Engage remotely and will doctors want that? And then there is this phase that's happening right now, like what's the new normal? <laughs> so what were kind of the first thing that you experienced like, in that state of like almost like panic with, you know, 10 years put in clinical development and one to two billions of dollars and now this happens. You're like, you're already set to go and now COVID happened. What were kind of the things that you tried that worked and things that you tried that didn't work? I remember one line um, that was said at, the, at that March timeframe. It's very easy to pull everyone out, field sales personnel and everything. It's more difficult to plug them back in. That was going to be the challenge. And fascinating that that came to be the case because directly to your question, the first thing you scramble for is what will our, you know, field teams do and, and you know whether it's 2,000 or 500 or 50 there's that immediate question of what do we have them do over the next week two weeks months then you scramble to develop those type of activities there's the home base home-based activities but if the organization wasn't prepared for virtual engagements if they were not prepared to have their marketing messaging put into the digital format, whether it be delivery in a Zoom format or, you know, uh, uh, rep to physician mailings. Then we went into how do we conduct interface, right? The, the speaker program. So they had to make a very quick pivot to develop virtual interface programs, which I don't know how many 
organizations were prepared for that. That changes a lot of things on the compliance front. It changes things on the material front. You have to get everything re-approved by PRB. There's so much work that had to be done in such a short amount of time. I think today, let's hope we never get into that situation, but I believe organizations would be very much better prepared to deal with something like that because many of these assets have already been translated into a digital format, which was the biggest scramble that, that needed to be done immediately. How do we provide the materials for our representatives who are now literally locked out of, of offices almost overnight? Um, and then you mentioned that today's world and the new normal, I, I think the number is in and around 35 to 40% of our healthcare providers are allowing access. And so there's still this idea of using both the digital assets in this virtual environment and the face-to-face -face healthcare provider experience, which I'm a firm believer that nothing is better and more effective than a rep in front of a physician with a message, possibly a sample. That human-to-human that -human interaction is still the most powerful, but as we know with you know, 35, 40% of offices uh, allowing access, there's still a large portion that still says we have to navigate that, uh, whether it be virtual or finding other engagement uh, opportunities with, with our providers. Yeah, it's also, you know, we're thinking, uh, even if for the role of a rep, that they come they come out a little bit earlier in the, in the journey, because the journey starts with uh, on-demand content. In the same way, I often say, like, when we buy new products, we usually, you know, don't call sales rep immediately. We first uh, get ourselves educated, watch a few videos, and then, you know, we may talk to a sales, sales rep. So even for those doctors that allow access, maybe the role is a little bit different, that rep is more like a digital orchestrator, comes a little bit later in that journey of adopting new products. But it's really, the other side is very, it's fascinating. Like, what about the other 50, 60%? or 60 to 70% of doctors that, that there's no access. I recently came across a report and it says, well, doctors prefer now video engagement. I think it was Viva Pulse report. Like they, they spend more time video engaged and the report doesn't mention that that applies only to those 30, 40% that, that you have access to. But the others, there's like no access to start with. <laughs> so it's, it's really a question, a challenging question what to do with those six to 70% of doctors that there is no access. Do you have any thoughts of that? I do, and one thing that has been a fascinating experience and a learning for me in many cases, I'll be, I'll be honest about that, is the use of things like an engagement center um, from either an organization or an organization like Cineos in which you have you know, virtual reps, if you will, creating not only engagements with HCPs, but at least maybe creating access to the HCP. So they may not, you know, you may be have an off-limit office or these are in white space, non-targeted or, or whatever the case may be. There are call centers that create engagement, create access. Uh, they can deliver messaging to the physician. They can deliver it to that ancillary staff that supports the physician. Fascinating does create a ton of um, uh, access, if you will, that, that may not have been there previously. So that's a new resource. Then there's the growth of this. Um, I call it the journey, but it's that omni-channel surround sound, whatever buzzword that you want to put on it, that with the, the capabilities that surely the marketing teams that organizations have, they can you know, find these targeting efforts and, and, and find the it goes beyond the banner ad that you click on when you, you, know, you see your, your shoes that you glue. It goes way beyond that. It, it can be synchronized beautifully with both the engagement centers as well as our 
real representatives. So there's one touch point. There's the digital optimization that comes in with more messaging for that physician based on what that representative or that engagement center talked about. So you're really getting multiple hits on the physician. So even if access is a challenge, they're still being delivered a message or they're still having the opportunity to have some sort of engagement with that organization and the brand. And uh, what do you think will be the, the role of content in that, in your opinion? and types of content that works and on-demand versus rep-delivered content and it's on-demand you know, type of content that you see doctors engage or that you anticipate a lot of tests and iterations that are coming by pharma and meta companies? I think the ability that is now available where you can direct that specific content based on the almost the request or the engagement itself. So I think the, the evolution has gone where if I were to engage with you as a physician, the digital follow-up may have been in the past a blanket message. It was pretty much one type. Now the ability exists that based on our conversation, what you uh, voiced interest in can now be tailored to whatever those digital follow-up look like. It is capturing the various messages of the brand and targeting and tailoring it directly to your needs and wants. I personally think I'm not a real digital guy. I you know, don't do the social media stuff very much, do the LinkedIn and the things like that. But that to me is, is fascinating. And at the same time, I believe it's the, the targeted way to go because you know, I mentioned the midsize and the smaller companies able to have a role in launches. Well, part of that is because some of the the, the launches are now targeted into specific patient types, specific physicians or specialties. That messaging needs to be targeted just as well. You got it, Claire. And um, it's interesting also to touch a little bit because you, you, you worked at Novo Nordisk and uh, they have a big focus on diabetes with insulins and then GLP-1 agonist. And um, now I just read an article last week that on Fierce Pharma that, you know, obesity market, it's like the antihypertensive markets in the 80s and 90s, and some analysts saying $50 billion. Um, anything you, you can comment or, or, or on about the diseases that require market shaping, like obesity, because a lot of clinicians don't see it as a disease, right? So anything you, uh, you think will be different about launching products in, in that area and, and shaping the market in the right way? And I did see the same article that this is a tremendous market growth that exists for Nova Nordisk, Lilly, and other uh, organizations who might be in that marketplace at some point. Nova Nordisk, I know for sure, has been in that marketplace for a while with a previous uh, obesity product that they've had launched for many years. And it's not only the physicians, it's also the payer side that doesn't recognize uh, obesity as a disease. And I'm sure there will be other therapy areas that may face this challenge. So half the battle is selling a product that is on the market. And then half the battle is, or some percentage of the battle, is obviously working with uh, lawmakers and therefore to get some certain uh, you know, congressional actions to be taken so that the payers then will recognize, for example, a disease state like obesity as a disease and, and get some standard listing coverage for a brand like that. The challenge then becomes is if you were to do that at the, before launch, for example, and I know another example is NASH. Uh, the, 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 the organization who brings Nash to market first will have some market shaping to do at some point down the road. Um, there are multiple ways to do that through medical engagement, which I think is tremendous. And, and there's, you know, deploying your medical teams out first prior to any launch. Uh, there's obviously KOL engagements. There's also the, with social media, I think you have the tremendous opportunity to use some of these virtual engagements where if you were to do disease state 
talks, non-branded, uh, you can reach a greater audience in a digital world without having a deployed sales force than you could, I don't know, 10 years ago, for example. And so you can really help shape the marketplace long before a brand comes to market and help them develop some understanding, get your KOLs on board, speaking to these various aspects of the disease. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Like the opportunities actually became bigger after COVID. Uh, when you're taking everything into account that you're, you're saying, now you move from from a pharma side to an agency side, and and first of all, where do you see the role of agencies in the when it comes to the context of pharma launches? Because with everything that you just said. One thing or, or two things that we notice in the market is every man talking to a lot of pharma and meta companies is A, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty, especially if you're launching a product, because if you look at the stats and you know that has impact on your career as a, as a pharma executive. So you're like, okay, I have high, high chances of failing with my launch. Number one, number two, I have to have now so many more competencies and many of them are digital. <laughs> so I have to have like people who have to know a lot about a lot, <laughs> about different channels, different messaging, connecting omni-channel technology, this and that, speak the language of three or four disciplines in a way. So it, it's uncertainty and it's, it, it's, it's skill set, right? And so I was wondering with that said and, and, and all access to doctors, what do you see as a role of agencies? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? And where specifically do you think agency will be able to help pharma? I think an agency, for example, Asinios, um, one of the, the greatest assets that I, I see at this organization, and, and, and Cineos is, is a small plug, the only one who can offer that you know, lab-to-life type uh, from beginning to end uh, opportunity, is that we can plug our organization in at any point. So if you're a large farm organization, you may be resourced in a completely different way. You will be resourced in a completely different way than a smaller or mid-sized, but there's still value from Bacinio's health, whether it's the consulting side, whether it's the clinical development side, or even the deployment of a, a sales organization to maybe manage some of the mature brands that you have to make a trade-off decision on as you launch. But Cineos also, from a standpoint of that small to mid-sized organization who may be launching their first commercial asset. Um, you probably look at that and go, what do we do with this asset that we're coming into a market that might be crowded? We might be a first-in-class in player. Cineos and, and an organization like Cineos can help that organization from start to finish, whether it be everything from naming to brand development, you know, the, the marketing campaign, the deployment, and even moreover, how do you deploy? What are the best deployment decisions that you need to make? And what are the factors that you should look at when a you're making a deployment decision on size and structure? Should you go you know, the, the, the big and bold or should you start small and wait for your market access to catch up in cer certain markets? Sineos is that partner that especially for some small and mid-sized organizations who are doing this for the first or second time may not have that commercialized experience. And we can act as that launch office or that, um, uh, you know, that launch excellence office for an organization. And I do believe that, as you know, I mentioned before, where, where assets and molecules are becoming more targeted in their, their launch, you know, where they're playing in the disease states, it's going to bring in more smaller and mid-sized organizations that an organization like Cineos can be a perfect partner for. So I see that's the biggest change that I've seen after working at a, at a large organization like Nova Nordisk and being part of its tremendous growth over 15 years. And now you move over to the other side and you can see how an organization like Cineos can help everything from big pharma, but especially some of those small and mid-sized companies commercializing assets.
Yeah, you may appreciate a little bit more the world of agencies, <laughs> knowing not more the, the the amount of capabilities also that's needed on that side. And, and yes, there is there's been this trend of smaller to medium sized companies launching on their own, not entering royalty deals with pharma, but uh, launching on their own with help of companies like seniors who have, may have those end to end capabilities. Um, anything for you personally that you would highlight uh, from making the switch from pharma to agency side? What was were kind of your aha moments? I think some of the, the aha moments were, first of all, how, how broad the organization was or is, I should say. I, you know, you start, the more you deal with some of your colleagues internally, you realize that the, the clinical research organization part of this organization is huge. Then there's the consulting side. Then, then there's the, the recruiting side, which in itself is part of what makes it go from what we call our, where I am is the deployment solution side. You need that pipeline of talent and, and the amount of work that is done to retain, keep you know talent warm and ready to go at a moment's notice is, is absolutely fantastic. The last part I would say is, um, and I say this with a very uh, bit of humbleness to it, um, you realize that you can help companies and you can help others in, in these companies who are, are looking for a voice, a sounding board, someone who may have done it before and, and they want to sanity check their own ideas for, for lack of a better word. And I, I love those conversations with some of my peers at some of the companies, big and small, where you're helping them kind of vet things out in their head, put it on paper and make some good decisions. That's been a fantastic opportunity. Sounds like it's been a it's been a great change for you, and uh, sounds like you're not looking back. So so good to hear that. I can feel it in your energy. Um, when it comes to, to to bring this together in a practical way, so uh, now we are entering the budgeting season, or it's already in the middle of it. The next two three months will be there will be a lot of discussions. So, what are one or two pieces of advice that you would give to? someone planning their budget, commercializing products, launching new indications over the next two or three months. What are the, those lines in the Excel sheet that they should be thinking about and why? I would take certainly into consideration your footprint from a, a sales force. And you know, in, in a lot of the companies I deal with and, and, and work with, there are single person territories, which means that you may have to invest a little heavier on some of the digital or virtual capabilities in order to support. I would look at how important and how much of your potential business that you would like to claim in order to reach your brand ambition sits outside of your targeted geography, that could create an entire need for a different investment. I mentioned engagement centers, which may cover white space and in some of the geographies. And are you properly resourced in the most key areas that have the best opportunity if you're looking at it from a one-year planning cycle? Meaning, does market access have you blocked out in various geographies across the country? And do you, in a realistic way, expect that to change? Based on those answers, are you properly invested either too, too big or too small in those markets to gain the most access or to gain the most return on your, your investments? You know, hypothetically, you have a market that you're blocked out for 65 or 70% of your commercial patients. Your prime patient type is in the commercial space. Are you properly resourced in that market knowing you may not have the access, both physical and market access, to drive the needed demand of your brand. Those are the type of questions I would look at from a brand planning standpoint over the next couple of months. And some of those are, are not major shifts. Others may require some bold decisions on, on, on behalf that may make us feel uncomfortable, but maybe that's the new normal. Feeling a little more uncomfortable than we have in previous brand planning cycles uh, uh, from a pharmaceutical manufacturer. That's great. I was just taking a few notes. and. For the, for the very end, I uh, wanted to 
ask you some uh, quick questions or quick answers that uh, that I like to kind of bring a little bit of human side, you know, the guests. So, um, what's your? You mentioned one of the buzzwords already before. So, what's your favorite industry buzzword of the year 2022? Virtual engagement. It's there. It's everywhere. Virtual engagement. It's everywhere. Agree. What's the best book you read in the last 12 months? I read a lot. I read terrible fiction novels about spies and and guys like that and I read probably two every month. So I I don't even know the authors anymore. I read so many of them the authors and the characters blend together, but they're all great and they just they're five pages a night before you go to sleep, but they're fantastic. Got it. And it's better than the screen, I guess, screen time. Absolutely. What's your go-to song when you need some inspiration? Probably something by Metallica. Oh, Metallic. Oh, nice. All right. The energy, yes. Uh, who in the world of pharma would you most like to take out for lunch? That's a great question. It's a tough one. It is a very difficult one. Probably the head of the FDA or something like that. I would love to know. There's so many questions I could ask the head of the FDA. I don't blame you. All right. Uh, and then what's a one-sentence advice would you give, you, you'd give to anyone just starting out in pharma marketing or product launches? Passion. Passion for patients, passion for the brand, but passion. Got it. And then where can people find you online? I am on LinkedIn. Um, I think uh, you can search my name. Obviously, it'll come up and there, there may be multiple Trevor Landry's <laughs> in the world, but uh, I'm the, the one uh, at Cineos Health. And, um, but I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on, on any other social media platforms. I keep it uh, squarely to LinkedIn for, for ease and just control of content, to be quite frank. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Uh, that's our or my platform of choice as well. All right. Uh, well, Trevor, it's been really a pleasure talking with you. And thank you for, you know, very concrete examples, specific examples sharing from your career and what happened in COVID and, and what's happening right now and all the, the trends. And looking forward to connect with you in the future. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast was brought to you by Evermed, Evermed offers pharma companies the fastest path to having their own Netflix-like on-demand video engagement hubs for doctors or patients. Make sure to search for Pharma Launch Secrets in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and click on the follow icon so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Evermed, thanks for listening.